Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Amara, and this is Black Girl Gone, a true crime podcast. On this episode of Black Girl Gone, I tell the story of 15-year-old Latasha Harlins, who was shot to death on March 16, 1991, in South Central Los Angeles. The day she was murdered, Latasha went to a local convenience store to buy orange juice. But when she went to the counter to pay for it, the store owner accused her of shoplifting. A fight broke out and Latasha tried to get away. But the store owner pulled out a gun and shot her as she turned to leave. The store owner was arrested and convicted, but she never went to jail. Latasha's murder and the lack of justice that followed sent shockwaves throughout Los Angeles. 32 years after her murder, not much has changed. This is Latasha's story. When Latasha Harlins was murdered 32 years ago, the world looked different than it does right now. But in many ways, things haven't changed very much at all. Latasha's murder and the miscarriage of justice after is a story that should never be forgotten because it's a story about the senselessness of a 15-year-old girl's murder. But it's also about how the justice system in America often fails Black people. 32 years ago or today, What happened to Latasha Harlins in 1991 could have easily happened to her in 2021, and the results would have been exactly the same. A devaluing of Black lives in order to justify their murders is something that has continued. If you're too young to remember Latasha's story or just are not familiar with it, you have watched history repeat itself, especially over the last several years. Latasha's story is a complicated one. At 15 years old, she had already been through a lot and had seen things no child should. Finding out about her life makes her brutal murder even more unfair because Latasha deserved so much more. Latasha Harlins was born in East St. Louis, Missouri on January 1st, 1976. Her mother, Crystal Harlins, was just 16 years old when she gave birth to her. Crystal then went on to have two more children, Christina and Bester Jr., with her then-boyfriend, Sylvester Acoff. 
Latasha's family, including her grandmother Ruth, had lived in St. Louis for years. But in 1981, the family decided to move to Los Angeles. Latasha was just six years old. Ruth, her grandmother, had moved there first in 1980, hoping for a better opportunity. The family moved to South Central Los Angeles, where they settled into their new lives. Latasha enrolled in school, and Crystal and Sylvester got jobs. She worked as a waitress, and he worked at a local steel factory. They lived near 89th and Broadway, and although the family had moved to L.A. with hopes of things being somewhat better for them, the neighborhood that they moved into was in a steady decline, and the crack cocaine epidemic and ongoing gang violence was fueling that decline. While Natasha and her family were moving in, many Black families were moving out to get away from the violence. But for Latasha and her siblings, the violence that they were witnessing was happening inside their own home. Sylvester, for years, was both physically and verbally abusive to Crystal, and he would often assault her in front of the children. The beatings continued to get worse in the years after they moved to L.A., but in 1983, Crystal had had enough, and she left Sylvester. But the harassment continued. He began stalking her, even as she tried to move on. One night, he followed her while she was on a date with another man. And when he caught up with them, he beat Crystal severely. She had a busted lip and a black eye. After the beating, Crystal decided to file a restraining order, hoping that the abuse would stop. The restraining order was granted, and Sylvester was ordered to not only stay away from Crystal, but also stay away from Latasha and her siblings. But Sylvester didn't care. He continued to stalk and harass Crystal, and he didn't care who was around. Latasha was a young child, growing up first in a household where her mother was abused, but then had to witness her mother being stalked and attacked even after ending the relationship. It was constant, and Crystal, her mother, lived in an ongoing state of fear. It's hard to imagine that seeing what she had, that Latasha also wasn't living with that same fear. Sylvester was arrested several times for violating his restraining order, including for battery, after another public vicious beating of Crystal. But it seemed like nothing was going to stop him from enacting his rage on her. By 1985, Latasha and her family had been in L.A. for a few years, but the life that they were hoping for when they arrived seemed further and further out of reach. Latasha was nine at that time and had already witnessed so much. But it was only the beginning of the tragedy that she and her siblings would deal with. On September 30th, 1985, was Vester Jr.'s fifth birthday party, and Sylvester showed up with a new woman that he was dating named Cora Mae Anderson. The whole family was in attendance, but Sylvester hadn't changed. In fact, his anger towards Crystal had only increased, and his behavior was becoming more and more aggressive. He had been arrested two times in the months prior to that day for drug possession. At the party, for reasons that are unknown, an argument broke out between Crystal and Sylvester, and then it turned physical when he started to beat Crystal up. Cora May got involved, and Crystal accused her of holding her down so that Sylvester could hit her, something that Cora May denied. She said that she was trying to stop Sylvester, but Crystal didn't believe her. Once again, 
Latasha and her siblings had witnessed their mother being beaten up by Sylvester. What should have been a good memory for a child, a sibling's birthday party, was shattered by violence. But just two months later, Latasha and her siblings' entire world would be completely shattered. On November 26, 1985, Crystal was out at a local club where she was known to frequent, named the B&B Club. She hadn't seen Cora May since her son's birthday party, but that night, as fate would have it, Cora May came into the club while Crystal was sitting alone at the bar, and the two began talking. But after about 30 minutes, the women began to argue. The club bouncer got in between them and tried to prevent the two women from fighting, but little did he know that Cora May had a gun in her hand. She reached over him and pulled the trigger, hitting Crystal in the chest. She died at the scene. Crystal was 26. Latasha was devastated. At nine years old, she was now without her mom, who had been violently and suddenly taken away. After years of witnessing violence at the hands of her stepfather, it had all come to a brutal end. Violence had become an inescapable part of Latasha's young life. Her grandmother, Ruth, had lost her child, a pain in and of itself. But in a cruel coincidence, her brother was also shot to death outside of a bar the same day Crystal was in East St. Louis. It was the second brother to be shot and killed outside of a bar. But there wasn't much time for her to grieve. She had to step up and be there for her grandchildren, and so Ruth took Latasha and her siblings in. Cora May was arrested, but was released on a $35,000 bond a couple of months later. She was charged with voluntary manslaughter, but it would take two years before her trial would begin. Cora May was ultimately found guilty, but she only received a sentence of five years for Crystal's murder. Crystal's family was angry. The justice system had failed them by not giving their daughter and mother's killer the maximum sentence allowed. It's hard to imagine how just a few years later that this same family would find out how in eerily similar ways that not everyone receives the justice that they deserve. Sylvester Sr. stayed in the children's lives for a while after Crystal's murder, but he continued to commit various crimes and was arrested multiple times. For a while, he lived with Ruth and the children, but eventually he moved to Illinois where he continued to go in and out of prison. Ruth tried her best to give her grandchildren as normal a life as could be expected. They spent Sundays going to church and hanging out with each other and other family members. Latasha attended Bret Hart Middle School beginning in sixth grade. By that time, it had been three years since her mother's murder, and as hard as it was, life had to go on. Latasha was a popular kid, both in her neighborhood and at school. In middle school, she was a straight-A student, a student who participated in various activities outside of school, like track and drill team. When middle school was over, because of her grades, Latasha was able to choose her high school, and so her grandmother chose to send her to Westchester High School instead of her neighborhood school, where she would get a better education. The school, however, was far from where Latasha lived, 13 miles in fact, and it required her to take several buses to and from school, which made the adjustment to high school even more difficult. In middle school, Latasha had managed to get good grades and stay out of trouble, 
But by the time she transitioned into high school, her past trauma and her teenage growing pains began to mix, and Latasha began to struggle with her behavior at school, landing herself in trouble more often than not. She had gone from a scared little girl to a teenager with a tough exterior. But those who knew her best said that Latasha was always a sweetheart. She was always smiling. In some ways, Latasha was really just a typical teenager testing her boundaries. But it was having a negative effect on her grades. Her grandmother and aunt tried to talk to her about her behavior, but raising a teenager was hard. And Latasha was headstrong. But she was also dealing with emotional traumas that were contributing to her acting out. Her family worried about her. They didn't want Latasha going down the wrong path. Her grandmother had big hopes for her. She had always wanted to be a lawyer, and Ruth prayed that she would find her path again, finish high school, and go to college. Latasha had been through so much in such a short period of time and was living in an environment that preyed on young women like her. As strong-willed as she was, it was easy for her to be manipulated by her surroundings. But after their mother was murdered, Latasha stepped up and became a protector of her siblings. As the oldest, she felt a responsibility to take care of her little brother and sister, even with their grandmother Ruth there. Latasha became the leader, which in some ways I'm sure added to the weight that she was under. According to those who knew Latasha, they said she kept her feelings to herself. For the most part, she never talked about her family to her friends or her mom or her murder. In fact, she didn't talk about her home life very much at all. In the years since her mother's murder, Latasha had gone through a lot. But as she turned 15 at the beginning of 1991, neither she or her family knew the events that would transpire just a few short months later, or how their lives and the lives of everyone they knew would change forever. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. In 1991, Latasha Harlins was just 15 years old and living in south-central Los Angeles. Latasha and her siblings were being raised by their grandmother after their mother's brutal murder. But in March 1991, Latasha's life would also end in a brutal way. Her murder would be the beginning of a moment that would forever be etched in the minds of everyone who lived in Los Angeles. In the years since Latasha's family first migrated to Los Angeles from East St. Louis, everything had changed for them. They had come there as a family of five, but as of 1991, Latasha and her two younger siblings were being raised by their grandmother, Ruth. Their mom had been shot dead on Thanksgiving in 1985, and Latasha's stepfather, father of her younger siblings, had moved to Illinois after being in and out of jail. Life had not been easy for any of them. Before their mother's murder, Latasha and her siblings had watched for years as her stepfather abused their mom. 
even after she ended their relationship. Latasha, for the previous six years, had done her best to cope with the trauma, but as she moved into adolescence, she had turned her pain into a tough exterior that often landed her in trouble at home and school. But at her core, Latasha was a kind and, in many ways, naive child who was just trying to navigate a world that she knew nothing about. But that world was about to change. On the night of March 3rd, 1991, Rodney King was driving his car in Lakeview Terrace, Los Angeles, when he was pulled over by California Highway Patrol officers for speeding. Suspected of driving under the influence, the officers called for additional assistance from the Los Angeles Police Department. What happened next was captured on video camera by a witness from a nearby apartment complex. The video, which would later be broadcasted on news channels worldwide, showed a horrifying scene of police officers surrounding Rodney King, who was unarmed and appeared to be compliant. However, the situation escalated quickly when the officers began to brutally beat him with batons, delivering over 50 strikes in a span of just a few minutes. Despite being outnumbered and subdued on the ground, the beating continued mercilessly. The graphic footage also captured some officers using their tasers on him, exacerbating the assault. The sheer brutality and excessive use of force shown in the video shocked the nation and sparked outrage across racial and socioeconomic divides. After the incident, Rodney King was left with severe injuries, including broken bones and significant lacerations. He was taken to the hospital for medical treatment and then later charged with resisting arrest and evading the police. The video evidence, however, strongly contradicted the officer's accounts of the incident, and the charges against Rodney King were later dropped. The tensions that existed between the LAPD specifically and the Black community had been long-standing. The drugs and violence that plagued South Central LA gave police an excuse to use excessive force, even when people were not committing crimes. The problem was, before the gangs and drugs, issues of police brutality was something that Black people across the country had become accustomed to. But when Rodney King's beating was captured on tape, it was the first time that people actually got to see it happening, and it was shocking. During those first few days of March, the video of Rodney King's beating made its rounds and captured local and national headlines. On March 15, 1991, charges were filed against the four officers directly involved in Rodney King's beating after a grand jury indicted them. The community was happy with the indictments, although they wanted all the officers at the scene that night charged. This was at least something, and they thought it was the first step in getting justice and exposing the police brutality that Black people had been suffering under for decades. But that happiness was short-lived. The next day, once again, a single act of violence would ignite racial tensions in a new way. On March 16, 1991, Latasha's grandmother, Ruth, asked her to go to the store to get some orange juice for breakfast. At around 9.35 a.m., Latasha entered the Empire Liquor Mart and Deli, located at 9172 South Figueroa Street. At that point, the racial tensions that existed in the community weren't just black and white. Tensions between the community and the mostly Korean store owners 
had been brewing for years. When Korean business owners first came to South Central after the Watts riots, Black people in the area at first welcomed the businesses. However, some of the businesses refused to hire Black people in the community, and customers were often treated poorly by store owners. Their issues began to fester, and by 1991 had got to a boiling point, with more than half of all businesses in the predominantly Black community owned by Koreans. When surveyed, most Korean store owners held racial animus towards the Black community. However, they contended that their feelings and views were based on the violence and robberies that they had been victims of. Empire was a store that had a reputation of being rude to its Black customers and accusing people falsely of shoplifting. And so many people had stopped patronizing the store. But as fate would have it, that day, Latasha chose to go in there to purchase her family some orange juice. The store owner, Soon Ja Du, was working the counter that day. Usually, her son or husband worked the register, but on that day, Soon Ja was in the front alone. When Latasha walked into the store, she made her way to the fridge and grabbed the orange juice. She placed it in her backpack, took out the $2 she was going to use to pay for it, and then made her way to the front counter. But Sunja began accusing Latasha of stealing. She demanded that she put the orange juice back, but Latasha, who wasn't stealing the orange juice, refused. And so Sunja grabbed Latasha's bag and pulled her towards the counter as she stood on the other side. Latasha tried to get away, but she couldn't. And so she turned and began hitting Sunja, striking her and knocking her to the ground. Sunja then picked up her stool and threw it at Latasha. Latasha took the orange juice, which had fallen, placed it on the counter, and started to walk away. But Sunja was not done with Latasha. After being pushed back a final time, she grabbed a gun that was kept behind the counter and fired one shot into the back of Latasha's head. Latasha died at the scene. When Soon Ja's husband heard the gunshot, he ran out to see what was happening and found his wife passed out behind the counter and Latasha laying in a pool of blood on the floor in front of her. The police arrived 20 minutes later to find an already dead Latasha with the $2 crumbled in her hand and an incoherent Soon Ja who was going in and out of consciousness. But she told police that Latasha had been trying to rob her. Sunja was arrested and spent 10 days in jail before she was released on bond. The murder of Latasha severed any chance of the Black and Korean communities coming together at that time. After years of back and forth, Black community members began organizing boycotts of Korean-owned businesses. Sunja was charged with first-degree murder, but she maintained that she believed Latasha was stealing and that she had a weapon in her backpack. Her story differed significantly from witnesses in the store at the time, and surveillance footage of the murder clearly showed Latasha being shot as she turned to leave. Between the video beating of Rodney King and the surveillance footage of Latasha's murder, it was the first time many people were getting to witness the kind of violence being perpetuated on Black people, and it was making people angry, rightfully. Even though arrests had been made in both cases, Everyone knew that getting justice was still a long ways away. 
In November 1991, eight months after Latasha's murder, Sunja Du went on trial. She continued to maintain her innocence and insisted that she believed her life was in danger. The trial lasted for several weeks with eyewitness testimony and other evidence. And despite Sunja's pleas for self-defense, she was found guilty. But it was of the lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter. The conviction carried a maximum sentence of 16 years, and so after being convicted of the lesser charge, Natasha's family hoped that Sunja would at least receive the maximum sentence. But Judge Joyce Carlin, the judge presiding over the case, had other intentions. Instead of handing Sunja a 16-year sentence, she sided with the defense, believing that Sunja was in fear of her life. She sentenced Sunja to 10 years in jail, suspended, probation, 400 hours of community service, and a $500 fine. She would serve no jail time. The community was outraged. Probation for the murder of a 15-year-old girl. The tension that had been bubbling on the surface since the beating of Rodney King and then Latasha's murder and this sentence was only going to make things worse. In the weeks following Latasha's murder, her family, led by her aunt Denise, organized protest marches in front of the Department of Justice and Judge Carlin's home. She organized a recall petition and spoke to the media whenever they would listen. Latasha's family wanted real justice for her, and despite the judge's ridiculous sentence, they were determined not to give up the fight. They didn't want violence or riots. They just wanted justice. But the community around them was angry. And in April 1992, they exploded. On April 29, 1992, the cops involved in the Rodney King beating were acquitted. As news spread throughout the community, people began to hit the streets. And soon, protests turned violent. People began looting, and businesses, especially Korean-owned businesses, were set on fire. Empire Liquors was one of them. The riots lasted six days and ended once the California National Guard was brought in. In all, 63 people were killed. Thousands were arrested, and over $1 billion in property damage was sustained. Now, many attributed the riots only to the reaction to the Rodney King verdict. But... There was also outrage over what had happened to Latasha. People were angry. They had been angry. And when the cops who beat Rodney King were acquitted, that anger spiraled out of control. The aftermath of the two verdicts left a mark on South Central Los Angeles, one that lasted for years. Judge Carlin, being the target of protests, stepped down as judge. And in the summer of 92, Latasha's family received $300,000 from Soon Ja's insurance company, but they never got the justice that they deserved. The murder of Latasha Harlins was a tragic event that serves as a stark reminder of the injustices faced by Black people in this country. At the young age of 15, Latasha's life was cut short over a dispute involving a $1.76 orange juice. The shock and outrage that followed were amplified by the fact that her killer received a sentence of probation, 
leaving many questioning the value placed on Black lives within the criminal justice system. As we reflect on this heartbreaking incident, it becomes painfully evident that the lessons learned from Latasha's murder have not translated into sustained change over these 32 years. In recent years, we have witnessed a distressing pattern of Black people being killed on camera, only for their killers to be acquitted, perpetuating a cycle of dehumanization and injustice. The narratives surrounding these cases often seek to shift blame onto the victims themselves, which also perpetuates harmful stereotypes and erodes empathy. One of the most troubling aspects is how the media and society at large contributes to the devaluation of Black lives, particularly when the perpetrators are law enforcement officers. Children are prematurely robbed of their innocence, referred to as women and men despite their status as minors. This dehumanizing treatment further highlights the deep-rooted biases and systemic issues that persist within our society. The story of Latasha Harlins serves as a reminder of why we must not forget, and it serves as a sobering example of the flaws within our justice system and the ongoing fight for equality. It underscores the urgent need for transformative change, where every individual, regardless of their race or background, is afforded the same dignity, protection, and justice. We must continue to strive for a society where the color of one's skin does not determine their worth or the level of justice they receive. Latasha's story must be remembered as a rallying cry to confront the deep-seated biases and structural inequities that persist, reminding us of the work that still lies ahead in our collective pursuit of a more just and equitable future. May Latasha Harlins rest in peace. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We'll be back next week with a brand new story. In the meantime, make sure you follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.